Women constitute almost half of America's workforce, but we all know that men still dominate when it comes to authority and the power to make decisions. So what is a woman to do when she applies to move up the ladder? All too often, she might modify her language to fit in, and that appears to make sense. But Joyce He says that strategy is not just mistaken, it can actually backfire. And maybe it's not the woman who needs to be changed. Maybe it's the system. Joyce He is assistant professor of management and organizations at the UCLA Anderson School of Management. She studies gender inequality and how it can be overcome. Hello again, I'm Orman Olney, and this is How the World Works, a podcast of UCLA Anderson. And Professor He, welcome aboard. Thanks so much, Warren. It's a pleasure to be here. Oh, I'm glad to hear that. So you say that modifying your language is something that doesn't work. Before we get into why it doesn't work, what do you mean by modify language? What are examples of that? Sure. Yeah. So um, what we mean by modifying language is the language that people use to describe themselves when they apply for jobs. And so as you know, a lot of us have had experience doing, when we apply to jobs, we typically submit an application package. And this usually involves a resume and a cover letter and you know other statements as well. But those two kind of tend to be the most common documents that we submit. So I was interested in, in how people were using language to describe themselves in cover letters and resumes. We looked at the language that women and men use in their cover letters when they apply for jobs in which their gender incongruent. So these are jobs in which you don't fit the kind of gender stereotype of the job, right? So that would be women applying for male-dominated jobs and men applying for female-dominated jobs. And so specifically, we were interested in looking at how are people modifying language when they're applying for jobs in which they aren't this kind of natural fit by their gender. Essentially, what we, how we kind of looked at this was looking at what we call gendered language. Uh, so this is words that are stereotypically associated with women or men. So gender language can be both masculine language as well as feminine language. So masculine language are words that are stereotypically associated with men. For instance, like assertive, aggressive, uh, competitive, dominant. Whereas feminine language are words that are stereotypically associated with women. So these are words like sympathetic, understanding, collaborative, and interdependent. And essentially what we find in a series of studies that I'm happy to delve into a bit more is that women tend to actually use less feminine language when they apply for male-dominated jobs, right? So essentially what they're doing is describing themselves using less feminine language when they apply. Well, that would seem to make sense because they're applying for jobs that require presumably them to be more aggressive, more competitive, more dominant. Why doesn't it work? Yeah, it's super interesting because what we did was we also tried to get at why women are doing this, right? You know, why are they using less feminine language? And what we find in a series of studies is also that women are doing this primarily because they anticipate, uh, like you said, that they're not going to be seen as a good fit, right? You know, they're applying for a job. It's clearly male-dominated. They're not a man. And so they report doing this because they anticipate negative valuation based on their gender. So essentially, they're kind of they're kind of covering uh, their feminine identity by using less feminine language. Now, you kind of mentioned that this uh, strategy doesn't work, which is really interesting uh, because, as you said, we might expect this to actually work. 
But as it turns out, we also know from a really robust literature in social psychology that people have two types of stereotypes. So we tend to have stereotypes that we call descriptive stereotypes. So these are expectations of how women and men tend to behave in society, right? So men tend to be more aggressive and assertive and competitive. Women tend to be more friendly, collaborative, and、uh, sympathetic. But we also hold what we call prescriptive stereotypes, and these are kind of like gender rules. These gender rules essentially are statements like, you know, women should be more assertive, competitive, and dominant, and women should be more、uh, sympathetic, understanding, collaborative, etc., etc. What happens when women downplay feminine language when they apply for male-dominated jobs is that they actually run into these prescriptive gender rules, right? So when they kind of violate our expectations about how women are expected to self-present. We see that evaluators are rating them as less likable and also less hireable, and that's why we see that the strategy actually, unfortunately, backfires. Right? It's kind of a like ironic situation where women are using these strategies in a way to overcome bias. Right? The idea that they don't fit with those jobs, but in doing so, they're running into this other form of bias, which is how women are expected to self-present. So there's really a double bind, it seems to me. If you want to apply for a job that requires aggressiveness and competitiveness and dominance, and yet you're supposed to use language that shows you're friendly, collaborative, and sympathetic, those might be nice qualities, but they might not be the qualities that you need for the job. Yeah, exactly. And I think you know this work on cover letters really ties nicely to. Other work that's been done on the double bind of women in leadership, where, as you state, it's kind of this idea of no matter what you do, right, you can't win. So on the one hand, if you don't do anything, you're seen as not leader-like or not a good fit. If you do act in a more assertive way, you're seen as kind of a bad woman, or you know you receive this kind of backlash or、uh, penalty and liking as a result of not conforming to what we expect women to behave. Okay, so we have covered chapter one, which is that、uh, modifying the language、uh, doesn't work. And the next question would be, how do you know that modifying the language doesn't work? That's something that、uh, you've done a lot of work on. We ran a series of studies in the paper, and I think it might be helpful to describe one or two of these because I think we try to get at this in a few different ways. And so, in one of the studies, what we actually did was we went to a business school, and we were interested in looking at the admission process for the MBA admissions. At this particular business school, we had a kind of unique situation where applicants actually had to pick a few words to describe themselves in the application. Right, so they had to use five words to describe themselves. And essentially, what I did was I coded those words for whether they were feminine or Masculine or just gender neutral, right? So that was a way that I could kind of assess the use of feminine and masculine language in job applications for this particular program. MBA programs, unfortunately, are still relatively male dominated. I believe in Canada and the states, the average is around thirty thirty five percent women. And so, in that study, we then also had a、um, outcome of whether applicants actually got invited back for an in person interview. So once applicants submit a application of you know the words to describe themselves, their GREs and GPAs, then they were asked to to come back for an in-person interview. And so we looked at how the language that people were using actually、uh, relates to the likelihood that they were called back for this in-person interview. 
And so in that study, what we found is that women who use more feminine language to describe themselves, they were more likely to actually be invited back for an interview for the MBA missions. This also meant that women who used less feminine words, they were less likely to get invited back for an interview for the admissions. These were choices the women made themselves. You didn't tell them what to say. That's right. That's right. In one of the other studies, I think uh, we try to get at this a bit more experimentally, and we ran an experiment. What we did was we recruited uh, around 500 undergraduate and online participants, and we had them come into a survey, and we told them that this was a job application. So we asked them to provide their current cover letter and resume. We then randomly assigned them to view one out of three possible job postings. Now, the job postings were either for an administrative assistant position, which is a female-dominated job, a tech assistant position, which is a male-dominated job, or a marketing assistant position, which is our gender-neutral job. Right, so participants only saw one of these, and this was kind of how we manipulated or treated the gender typing of the job. Following the job postings, after participants saw one of those, they were asked to actually revise their existing material. So we said, here's your existing cover letter. Can you revise it and write a cover letter that would allow you to apply for this new job that you just saw? What we can do then is to compare the cover letters before and after to see how these participants are modifying language, right? That's a direct way of looking at how they're modifying language. Now, we also measured a few survey questions to get at how are they feeling about the job. And one thing we measured is anticipated gender discrimination, right? To what extent do you feel that you'll be evaluated negatively based on your gender? When we look at the results for women, when they apply to male-dominated jobs, they're actually reducing the number of feminine words that they're using uh, in their cover letter. Right? So we directly observe that they're using less feminine language. They're not doing that for the female-type job or the gender-neutral job. They're only doing that for the male-dominated job. In some mediation analyses, we find that this is because when women apply for male-dominated jobs, they actually anticipate more gender discrimination, and that then predicts using less feminine language. Now, that was kind of the first part. So we find that you know, women are modifying language by using less feminine language for male-dominated jobs. What we then did was we took these real cover letters that participants created, and in a separate study, we showed them to a different group of evaluators. So these are completely different participants, um, and these are evaluators who have hiring experience. And we showed them a bunch of these cover letters and said, how likable and how hireable are these people for these jobs, right? How likely are you to hire this person for a tech assistant, admin assistant, or marketing assistant job? And there, we're able to look at what are the outcomes of these strategy. And essentially there, what we find is that, again, women who use more feminine language are more likely to be rated as more hireable. And women who use less feminine language or cover, they're seen as less likable and thus less hireable. Right? So we kind of replicate the findings in, from the MBA study as well. And so I think overall, this series of studies show us that you know, women are using these strategies to overcome bias, but again, they're running into this other form of bias where these strategies actually backfire. So you really nailed it, both determining that the women chose to do that and that it would backfire when they did. So you've been quoted as saying that rather to fix the women or fix the sexists, we should try to fix the system. What do you mean by that? Yeah, I think 
Um, that, so that, that's obviously a very provocative sentence. You know, I think thinking about this study, right, this finding that even when women do manage impressions of their gender, when they try to get a foot in the door by covering their femininity, they're still penalized and they're still stuck in this double bind. And I think this, the research really shows us that when we try to fix the women by telling them, hey, you should lean in or you should apply for that job, you should negotiate, you should act more assertively, that actually backfires, right? And so kind of putting the onus and responsibility on women and even other minorities like racial minorities to navigate such a complicated system with so many different rules and different stereotypes, it's very complicated, it's ineffective, and frankly, a little bit unfair. That's where the rest of my research kind of has been starting to head as I'm trying to look at, you know, what is the root of the problem, right? The root of the problem is that bias exists in the system. That's what women are responding to. That's why they're managing impressions of their gender. That's why they're using less feminine language. And so what if we actually just tackle the root of the problem, which is the bias? So I think there is a lot of research, including my own now, that looks at, you know, how can we actually fix the system itself? Um, and I'm really excited about that work because I think that really brings in the role of organizations and managers and companies to tackle this kind of bigger societal problem. One of the things that you have talked about is the difference between a system that allows women to opt in as opposed to opting out. What does that mean? What are they opting in or out of? Yeah, so this is based on my dissertation work and I think really falls under this kind of broad category of work that looks at how can we actually fix the system itself. And I think this was inspired in part you know, by this cover letter work but also by this observation that we started off with in this, our discussion today, that there's just not a lot of women in senior management positions. And part of the reason is that we observe this gender promotion gap whereby women are less likely than men to get promoted to senior management positions. Now, you know, a lot of the current interventions might say we need to tell women just to apply, right? And they need to put themselves forward. They need to lean in. Or, you know, there's been other interventions that have focused more on we need to fix evaluators' biases. We need to tell them to control their minds and, you know, not have these biases. But in my dissertation, I wanted to take this different approach of can we redesign the promotion process rather than trying to kind of change behavior by changing individuals. One creative way of thinking about this is by thinking about these things as choices. And in doing so, we can really draw on this really interesting and broad literature on choice architecture, which is the idea that the way you frame and present choices can have a really big influence on behavior. And so within this literature, one of the biggest distinctions is between opt-in versus opt-out choice frames. Uh, and if we think about most promotion schemes in most organizations and most companies, most promotions require applicants to kind of self-nominate or what I categorize as an opt-in frame, right? So by default, you're not considered, but you can apply or put yourself forward and opt-in to be considered. But conversely, we know from the choice architecture literature that opt-out framing is actually a much more effective way at increasing enrollment into some more desired behavior. And so what opt-out means is that everyone is automatically signed up for some desired behavior unless you opt out. And in this case, that would mean for promotions that everyone who has some kind of qualification threshold, everyone is automatically considered for the promotion 
unless you actively indicate that I don't want to be considered. And we've seen that opt-out um, framing has been really successful in terms of increasing enrollment into organ donation programs and retirement savings plans. And so that's the basic idea. So you're saying then that women are more likely to apply in a system where they have the option to opt out? That's right. Women are just as likely as men to stay considered and not opt out. And that's actually what we find. So I ran a series of experiments, both in the lab and in the field. And I think in one of the experiments, what's really cool is that we implemented this kind of opt-in or an opt-out choice frame. And so what we find is that in the opt-in choice frame, when participants, they're not competing for anything, but they can kind of apply and self-nominate to compete for this more uh, higher risk, higher reward, we actually find that women are less likely than men to put themselves forward. So they're less likely to choose to opt in to compete for this reward. But in the opt-out condition, we actually find that when everyone is automatically signed up to compete for this reward, but you can opt out, we actually find that women and men compete at similar rates. And so in the opt-in condition, we actually see a 25% gender gap in the absence of any performance differences. So women and men perform equally as well, but women are less likely to kind of opt in in the opt-out condition, this gender difference goes away, becomes 1%, which I think is actually quite astounding. Yeah, it really is. So this is a strategy then for trying to get rid of the gender bias in the workplace. Are companies receptive to this idea or have you got to that point yet? Have you proposed that various companies do this and try to make it work? I think, first of all, that companies are interested. Um, we've actually been in the works. We've been talking with a few organizations to roll out a large-scale evaluation of such an intervention. I think one thing to keep in mind is that actually a lot of companies do use an opt-out kind of promotion scheme. And so it's not like an infeasible intervention. It's actually something that is quite feasible and implementable. I think what's also really cool about this kind of intervention is that it doesn't require, you know, rehauling of everything, right? It's such a small change and shift in just how you frame the choice, but we see such compelling results, right? We see such big results and big changes in terms of behavior. And I think, I think that's a great way for organizations to make use of these smaller structural changes that they can make that actually have such large effects. To be determined, I think once we are able to actually run a large-scale field experiment in a company, that would provide really compelling evidence that this is something that we can roll out to realistically reduce the gender gap. So as I understand it, this applies to promotions for people who already have jobs. What about people who apply for jobs? Have you found any way in that context of uh, reducing the gender bias? Yeah, so I think there is a, a lot of work looking at how to reduce gender bias in the selection process, which is a bit closer to the cover letter uh, work that we started off with. And I think one of the interesting interventions that companies are starting to do is anonymized selection. And so the idea is that if gender and gender biases are affecting these decisions, as my research shows, what if we actually just remove gender or any other identity from the whole process? But instead of asking people to kind of not think about gender and not be biased, a way to kind of just change the process itself is actually to remove names from cover letters and resumes. So if you don't have the name, it's really difficult to infer whether this person is a man or a woman. And so if you don't have that information, you also won't kind of think about these gender norms and gender rules for how people are expected to self-present. And so that could be 
one interesting way to kind of change the actual system itself. And how can we change language in job postings to attract more diverse job applicants? With some findings showing that if you use less masculine language, if you remove masculine language and replace that language with more gender neutral language, you actually end up getting more women, but also more men who apply. So it's just more inclusive in general. But I think it's such an exciting kind of space now that we're shifting the focus from just here's all the way that biases are cropping up in the labor market now to how can we actually harness research from organizational behavior, from strategy, from behavioral economics. There's a lot of interesting ongoing work in this space. Well, it's fascinating. If, in fact, you remove the names and the employer doesn't know what the gender of an applicant is, does that risk a conflict with the goal of trying to balance the workforce in terms of gender? Yeah, so that's a great point. Um, And in fact, there is a recent paper that came out that shows that actually it doesn't always work. So this kind of anonymized recruitment process um, although we've been talking about, you know, it's been shown to be effective in some contexts and in lab experiments, um, this recent work looked at the actual effects of anonymized selection in a real company. And what they found is that it actually backfires sometimes when the company actually was intending to do kind of targeted recruitment, right? So they need that information if they're going to seek out those people. And so I think that's encouragement for researchers to kind of move beyond just the lab and actually do more research in the field to test out how some of these interventions that we've been thinking about, right, within, you know, in theory and lab experiments, how they actually extend to the field, and if there's any kind of contingencies that we need to think about when enrolling them out in the real world. And I think On a final note that, you know, this is just a starting point, right? I think a lot of this work is really exciting. And I think there's so much that can be done and to be gained from uh, collaborations between researchers and companies. And I think that to tackle such a big problem, everyone needs to be aboard. And I think there's a lot that we can all do together. What about the issue of applicants and people who are making decisions about jobs, the hiring people who are binary and non-binary? Yeah, so I think that's certainly a limitation of this work because in our um, analyses and in all of our data, we primarily just look at women and men. But obviously, you know, we know now that gender categories beyond just this binary category exist. And it's interesting to think about, you know, how these gender rules would apply or not apply for those different gender categories. And I think there's a lot of work that needs to be done on gender beyond the binary category and thinking about just how gender norms might affect everyone and how they really limit the you know freedom of expression of men, women, and all individuals broadly. All right. So gender bias in the employment area in the workforce is an enormously challenging problem. This is a very creative way of approaching it, it seems to me. And I want to thank you very much for being on our program. Thanks so much, Warren. Joyce He, Professor of Management and Organizations at UCLA Anderson. Once again, thank you very much for being with us. I'm Warren Olney. This has been How the World Works. Thanks for listening. Join us again.